Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Awesome to have you. Uh, I will remind everybody, as per the usual, uh, anything uh, advice-wise you hear on here is that it's not advice. You should get advice from a licensed practitioner in your in your, in your neighborhood or someone you know or don't know for that matter. And uh, we'll talk about all kinds of neat stuff, and we're going to have some fun. And uh, welcoming Mr. Faber to the to the uh, Resolve Rifts Thanksgiving edition afternoon, where it's 10 a.m. in uh, in in your area of the woods. So you're drinking a, a coffee, I see. But I, I, there was a lack of steam coming off the coffee, so I was wondering if it was a Johnny Carson coffee. Um, anyway, you know, leave that to two comments. Two comments. <laughs> One. My disclaimer is, listeners, you should absolutely listen to my advice because I give great advice. Don't listen to the Resolve crew. Um, uh, this is a coffee and Bailey's. Just kidding. Um, it's too early here. I, uh, you know, I'm, I have a coffee addiction, and so I'm like a pot of coffee a morning guy. So it's it's problematic, and I'm trying to uh, adjust. So uh, unlike you guys that put the like stick of butter in your coffee, do you guys still do that? That's the most foul yeah. thing. And what's problematic about it, Meb? I, I tried it once and spent the rest of the day having like a film of butter and my it was just like I just felt <laughs> nauseous. So So what you're telling me like, is this is jacked up, Meb. And yeah, I, right. like I can't even imagine pre coffee Meb then. <laughs> well, I also have a three year old, so I've been up for like seven hours already now. So right. this is like I, I the whole circadian rhythms. I, I'm a night person, man. You guys record this at like 11 p.m. or one in the morning. I'd be I'd be ready to go. So I have like a a coffee alternative. It's like a mushroom mud water. If you've tried it, it's 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 decent. It's pretty good. Is that the four anyway. sigmatic or whatever it is from the same same, uh, same umbrella? Yeah. Same do you find it a different it, brand? Do you find it promotes clarity of thought or like, what? What are your <laughs> I always kind of muddle through life in like a dark cloud. I, I don't know that I ever have this clarity of thought that people talk about. So uh, clearly, clearly. Yeah, that's what always comes to my mind when I hear Meb Faber, dark cloud. Yeah. <laughs> the Charlie Brown character walking around in his cloud. Linus. Yeah, Linus, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, Meb, you were saying that you, you might be keen to talk about some some things that that we believe that that most other investors don't or is that first of all does it make sense for us to even introduce meb at this point maybe we just roll into maybe it, meb right? should introduce us like i don't i don't <laughs> think there's anybody who who knows meb that's what i thought that's right yeah. knows us that's not meb so it's unlikely uh yeah i'll talk about anything you guys know me you guys want to talk about broncos beers skiing in canada by the way listeners if you have any good black friday ski deals i have an empty quiver and plan on doing some skiing this year. So hit me up if you guys see any good deals. I'll talk about anything, anything you guys want to roll with. My my only idea was, you know, much like politics and FinTwit on investing, you know, I feel like so many people hold similar beliefs, but what we spend our time arguing about is like that final like 10% or 1% or 0.1%. It's fun, and then we should argue about it because uh, that's what we get paid to do, and it matters. But um, some of the ideas I was looking through, uh, you know, some of these polls we do and, and we talk about ideas that 
the vast majority of the investing space. So let's call it like 75% or more believe that you guys don't believe. And it's, it's good. I think it's like a mental gymnastics. It's a good exercise to kind of work through because we've done many of these over the years and people, um, you start to see the world from a different perspective and it's often hard to go back once you, once you kind of open your eyes to a certain perspective, or you may just say, that's really stupid. I totally disagree with that. Anyway, I thought it'd be a fun jumping off point. Do you guys have anything? I think that's a great thing. I was just going to say, how do you know that what your information bubble is providing you with is representative of any large sample size or, or large enough sample size of the investor community out there? That, that I think, may be the, the, the starting point to understand whether or not we're able to even garner that information. Sure. Um, there's two parts to it. One, I think, is just a little bit of guesstimate common sense. So I'll give you one. And, and this is not one I want to necessarily argue about, but I don't think there's a more commonly held investment belief. And if you had to poll on Twitter, what percent believe this, I bet it would be 95, maybe 99%, which is stocks outperform bonds over time. I, I don't know anyone that doesn't believe that. As It's like the uh, you know laws of ther- thermodynamics, like that is ironclad. Every single person believes that. You could also do a poll you know, we've done a bunch of polls over the years that ask people, and obviously my universe will be different than yours, but we get to the point where it's, I think there's a common sense estimate where it's like 80%, 90% of people believe X, Y, Z. Um, so it was a little bit of guesswork, but uh, the ones ideas that I was kind of thinking about are so different and polarizing that, um, you know, that you end up on the opposite side, but I agree. You could, you could be in a, you could be in a slightly held bubble of people that like-minded thinking, but usually it's, it's the opposite. Well, actually a good example of that, Mike um, and I were chatting about this. I don't know if it was online or anyways, over the last few days, someone posted a chart showing the, uh, where uh, most investors believe the best opportunity is over the next five or 10 years. And at the very top of the list, was small value. And I said, you know, here you've got all these um, investors thinking that they're contrarian, being small value investors. And in reality, is this just a crowded trade? And Mike made the very um, valid point that what is the chance that this is just preference falsification, right? That, that this is a survey bias and it actually doesn't reflect where they're actually positioned or if they are positioned there, it's such a marginal uh, tilt that, it's, it's completely meaningless. And so we shouldn't take too much signal from the fact that the survey says X when their actual positioning may be something completely different than X. Might be even like one minus X, you know? So um, I, th- I think there is there is merit in being skeptical about our own assumptions. Well, I think it's absolutely the point, right? So if, if everybody gets to the point where they believe stocks outperform bonds, then you would get to the point where assets would be allocated such that stocks may not outperform bonds anymore. And so over, over what time frame and duration and cycles are, um, are those things going to manifest? We, we were talking last night in our group uh, and, you know, some, some, so I won't, I won't mention names, but, you know, some interesting folks there were, were talking about the fact that their uh, portfolio had a tilt to small cap value which had been put in place uh, years and years ago by someone who is no longer on the head of the investment committee anymore. 
So why are they going to spend time defending the positions of that previous investment committee member? They're no longer there to defend the position. And thus, we should just eliminate the small cap value position that's been dragging the portfolio for so long. And so now we run into these these, uh, uh, complicated dimensions of, you know, the, the actual uh, rubber hitting the road as with the respect to well, what are you going to allocate to? How long can you stand allocating to it while it betrays its uh, what's supposed to be some sort of long-term extra uh, risk premium that well, you're supposed to be harvesting? This is a perfect example. And uh, you guys have probably heard me make this analogy, but um, as you think to this stocks versus bonds, you know, being the first law of financial thermodynamics. The second would be um, inertia. You know, once someone allocates to something, your brain changes, you have a totally different psychological, uh, you know, approach to that investment. And one of the biggest insights that certain marketing people in our world, I mean, I think Fisher Investments is a great example of this, have understood is the value of a client. Uh, Because once they're there, it could be a separate account, it could be invest in a position. Often the headache of moving like for like they're there for 10 years, they're there for 20 years, you know, unless something crazy happens. Um, but let me give you an example. So the stocks versus bonds, 99% of people believe that, right? Um, but you ask the same people surveys, how long, and there's survey after survey after survey, and they all say the same thing. And this one is a good example of survey and how people actually allocate because there's been countless uh, academic papers that demonstrate this too. You make an allocation to an active manager or you make an allocation to an asset class, small cap value, whatever, maybe even beta stocks or bonds. How long do you give that asset class before uh, terminating it or looking for a replacement? And the vast majority, and it's like 80, 90 percent, it's uh, it's three years and less. And that's the time frame most of these institutions operate on. They do their committees once a year, maybe once a quarter. Uh, but, you know, year one, it underperforms. Hey. Maybe we'll rebalance into it. That wasn't the best timing. Year two, like you're getting some heat, maybe some career risk. Year three, that that there's no chance that person is still around. I mean, and so I ask people back when we have cocktail parties. So now we're just drinking mushroom coffee over over the internet now. Um, as we talk about this, and I used to talk to people, I say, you know, they'd invariably call me, complain about one of our funds that's doing terrible. So, Meb, I bought your fund three months ago, six months ago. Oh, God, it's doing awful. Uh, I, I'm going to give it a little longer, to which I usually respond, man, you ain't, you ain't seen nothing yet. This could be way, way worse. And they kind of awkwardly smile and they say, okay, fine. How long should I give it? And, and I say 10 years. They awkwardly laugh, kind of look around, wait for me to say something else. And then I would say, no, I'm serious. Like, this could easily go three, five, 10 years underperforming. And then, and now the modern version of 2020, I now say 20 years. And I say this with a completely straight face and a complete total honesty and transparency. An example I give that totally crushes kind of people's mindset that's relatively recent. In 2020, U.S. stocks had gone not three years, not five, not 10, 40 years with the same performance as long-term bonds. For decades the most ironclad universally held belief in all of investing is stocks outperform mm-hmm. bonds 40 years of not outperforming. And then of course you can take longer periods back in history of, of uh, you know, if you go back in the 1900s and 1800s of, of 60 years, 
But you can apply that to anything. I mean, my God, gold, small cap value, the Canadian barbell of junior miners and cannabis. <laughs> uh, I mean, everything, right? It's uh, And that's one. And, and people hate that reality. You know, they want results now. They want to, uh, you know, allocate and things magically do amazing in the first year. They want that feedback. That's just sadly and or, you know, happily for the people that can take advantage of it. It's not the way it works. I was on a panel uh, earlier this week with with uh, Dan Rasmussen, and we were chatting backstage afterwards about the Yale model and about Swenson. And and Dan was saying he's, he wrote a paper about Swenson uh, a year or two ago uh, and just sort of highlighting the fact that Swenson's big call in 1984 was to sell bonds and buy stocks. And of yep. course, from 1984 to today, the sharp ratio on bonds is two to three times the sharp ratio on on stocks. So, I mean, it was actually uh, this strange pro-risk call. He was terrified of inflation and uh, happened to make a big call on stocks when um, obviously it has been the greatest, most sustainable, most efficient bull market for bonds in the history of, of markets. And uh, what, what's so, interesting so counterintuitive. is he followed that call up with the massive change in 2000 from publicly traded stocks to private equity. Mm, mm. And he covers it in his books. And you can see it through the Yale endowments allocations. They start expanding rapidly to private equity. That's circa 2000. And they started uh, um, de-emphasizing U.S. stocks. So he's made a couple extremely uh, lucky, timely, thoughtful, however you want to characterize that, made, it, made a couple of those uh, very big calls and it is interesting that, you know, when you talk to, I don't know, large family offices, a lot of time they, they, they feel as though the Yale endowment model is some sort of, you know, cutting edge philosophy of investing. And I, it comes back to that, that sort of talking point that you and I uh, talk about, Adam, which is, okay, well, let's all write down our three most favorite, unique, novel strategies that we think are going to outperform over the next 10 years. Let's let's get a piece of paper. And obviously that the survey will be group dependent on on you know what, what gets on the paper. Um, but then turn to the person on your left, turn to the person on your right, compare notes. And are you in a crowded trade? Are you in a trade that's done epically well? Like is it is it Apple, Google, and Amazon? That that's Tesla and, and Tesla is my new novel idea. Um, or is it actually things that are uh, hated, uh, misloved, have had no risk premia for a decade or two, um, and and uh, and are very very difficult to own and to be different from everybody else? Uh, are they on the list? And how likely is that then able to get through the uh, the board approval, whichever board it is, whether you're an RIA dealing with retail clients or uh, you know, an institutional manager dealing with an investment board. How long will they will they um, operate with subpar returns? Subpar meaning you know with whatever benchmark that they've selected as a as a potential pacing mechanism. It's a good point because I'm and, and it actually is to, to Meb's theme, highlighting something that we've been chatting about recently, which is that um, one of the big myths I think that many investors embrace is that they should be uh, modeling their investment policy after. The huge institutions, right? The big pension funds and the big, the, the, the huge endowments. And um, I think 
that is just ultimately incredibly misguided because the big endowments basically are so large that they have to be the market, right? They they can't take any active bets that are sufficiently large enough to to make a dent in their um, return stream. So they end up just being the market, you know, and they try to they try to sort of move outside of public markets into private equity and and infrastructure and venture and et cetera. But it ends up just being all tied to pro-cyclical growth. Um, they're all just equity bets uh, of different stripes. And uh, so why would a small investor who has the ability to be agile in their, um, you know, m- moving their portfolio around strategically or tactically, but also has um, flexibility in their mandate. You know, they don't they don't have to look like anybody. There's no uh, committee that's going to review their results in three or five years and benchmark them against their peer group. Uh, they can do whatever they want. You know, they can pursue an absolute mandate or a, a, a target return mandate that is very t- uh, tailored to their specific investment objectives. And they can use all kinds of techniques and take strategic active uh, views in furtherance of, of that objective that aren't even on the radar of large institutions. So, so, so this myth that you should model yourself after Yale or uh, the or Calpers or the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund seems just profoundly misguided. I love picking on these guys too, and you guys have probably seen me do it on Twitter and, and elsewhere uh, because these big institutions in 2020 have an almost near impossible mandate, and you've seen the drama that's gone on with two of the biggest. Harvard Endowment and CalPERS, uh, because you have so many different vested interests. For Harvard, you have current students, you have alumni, you have future students, you have teachers, you have workers at the endowment, on and on and on. And um, the reality is a buddy of mine, Peter Medina, who's based here in LA, used to work at Waterline, I think is at Northern Trust now. He wrote a paper years ago that said you can just basically deconstruct Yale into a very simple factor-based exposure, uh, add sprinkle on a little leverage and voila, you end up with the Yale endowment returns. Now you got to give Swinson credit. Like, uh, you guys mentioned that he made those decisions at the time, you know, um, you know, he made the decisions to have a more of an equity exposure, whatever it may be that, uh, private equity is essentially LBOs or essentially small cap value, you know, on and on. Dan wrote a paper about that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Swinson gets a pass because they've done well, but going back to our original comments about underperforming, he doesn't, even Swinson, the most famous name in all of investing, he doesn't have an infinite pass. So I, I keep saying to all these uh, endowments and, uh, and big institutions, I said, you should just be managed by a robot. Just be done with it, CalPERS. Your returns are no better than buying the global market portfolio with low cost. You can fire everyone, be done with all these expenses and just move on. Um and in many ways, the, the the ways that you have to outperform creates even larger fractures because if someone sees to, to move the needle on a thirty billion or three hundred billion endowment, like you said, you got to move hard in the paint to something. Yale has less than three percent in U.S. stocks. <laughs> that's that's pretty hard in the paint one Agreed. way. Now they get the beta elsewhere, right? Yep. Of course, but um, but uh, well, yeah, the 3% you know that creates looking different. <laughs> And how many people are willing to look different for long enough? You know, again, Swinson can, but but three years, more, right? He gets, he gets a pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, three years. He gets a pass for a while. And wh- I forget which one of the endowments it was that we were recently talking about that their great idea to overcome uh, low expected returns in the coming decade or so was to lever up 
CalPERS. So at, it was a CalPERS. All right. Mm -hmm. So so at the end of the day, they're just moving from a sixty forty to a one fifty sixty or whatever the math is. I probably bundled that one up, but they're probably just augmenting the uh, the 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 beta to the entire market. They're just getting more exposure and creating more FOMO. So to answer your question, Adam, why doesn't uh, the average individual out there who has nimbleness and size, like lack of size in order to, to, to generate true alpha, because his attention span and his his ability to, to hold is probably six to 12 months, not even three years. Three years is at the far end of that spectrum. And he's just looking to, to quench that FOMO. And so if stocks continue to rise, I mean, how, how do we address that? I, I think, Meb, you probably... Uh, might have a, a thought or two on that. I had a thought or two on everything. Um, you know, the, the the biggest cringeworthy stat of this year for me is, you know, the consistent uh, investor estimates for what they expect their portfolio to do. And there's, I mean, every survey says the same thing and it's consistently 10% per year, 10% per year. I saw you posted this year, year or something. They, they broke out the equity markets by country and the U.S. was the highest because the U.S. has been stomping everything else. And the U.S. was at 15 percent. There's an old great Jason Zweig article about Charlie Munger and Charlie's talking to one of his buddies. And he's he says in his literature, he says, you know, we attempt to get 20 percent returns. And Charlie asks, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, Charlie asks his buddy. He's like, he knows that's impossible, but that's what his investors want to hear. And so uh, they're playing this game that they know you, 20% returns, you quickly become one of the richest people on the planet. You don't have to compound 20% for long and you become unbelievably rich. So kudos to the people listening that are, that are hitting 20%. The problem comes with expectations, right? Unless you study history, and this is hard, we don't teach personal finance or money or investing in any of the schools in the US. I don't know if you guys do. Um, there's a huge gap on uh, understanding uh, just basic, basic personal finance. And so just like in a relationship, you know, with your husband, wife, kids, parents, there's reality and expectations and you have a big gap and it doesn't happen. That creates big problems, you know? And so with, with investing, all of a sudden you're expecting 15% returns. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And you get a few years of negative or 50% decline or an 80% decline. Chances of you staying the course is zero. <laughs> you know, it just it's 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 an unwinnable problem. And this again, I, I think, by the way, this is not just individuals. I think institutions oh, are equally as atrocious. Hundred percent. Um, Second that motion. it's because they're in a, they're effectively individuals because it's the individuals that are motivated by agency effects. You know, like it's nobody is genuinely concerned about the long term welfare of the plan they're concerned about their the sustainability of their job and their bonuses right um and i don't mean that in, in to, to paint everybody into a corner i mean i think this is just the natural state of things right we're motivated by incentives and by by the own risks to to ourselves and to our families and therefore if you're going to align incentives so that you're going to reward or penalize a cio or an investment committee or a pm based on one, two, three-year performance, then you're going to have counterproductive activity because you can't manage returns over a one, two, three-year horizon. You certainly can't manage returns at that horizon uh, at that size of a fund where you don't have the ability to take active swings at the market uh, with any regularity. So, I mean, it's it, the, the system is set up for failure. And, and I think one of the things, if we want to give 
keep coming back to Swenson, but if we want to give him a pat on the back, I think it's for stacking his board with people that uh, supported his very, very long-term objectives, right? And so he wasn't marking his his uh, PMs and his managers to uh, performance benchmarks over ludicrously short time horizons. And his board isn't, it wasn't marking his own performance to short time horizons. And it allowed him to uh, effectualize theses that were able to play out over eight, 10, 15, 20 years, right? Which uh, he, I think is he a also, arbitrage opportunity. He also states in his book that he looks for non, non economic maximizers as portfolio managers, those managers who will stop taking money when their strategy stops working. Like he states this as a as I'm looking for people who are craftsmen first and the pride in the work is that it now this is insanely hard to find, obviously, but he states that as a goal, which again, I mean, so so there's some questions like, you know, um in in the uh in the in the chat too, uh, you know, given the 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 shortcomings that we're talking about, what does an investor do? What are some of the solutions? And and you know, Swenson's we're talking about Swenson, but these are some of the solutions. You do need to look for, you know, strategies in novel areas. You do need to consider asset classes that are diverse and and do the yin and yang and zig and zag. Um, and you do need to be disciplined and patient. And you do need to have a process to understand when a strategy is in a, a low, no return, understanding if that strategy is A, broken, then sell. B, if not broken, rebalance. And don't sell. I mean, just the process of having... 10 managers with a 0.5 sharp with an average vol of 10%. If you fire those managers when they're down 15%, you will fire 14 managers over 10 years. In the process of firing them during the drawdown, you are eliminating those sources of diverse return, right? So you're eliminating the bounce back. You're accepting the risk of those unique strategies that you called and cultivated and included. You've accepted the risk and are not going to get the rebound or the, or the, the, the return. And you've reduced the, the uh, diversification in the portfolio. And that's yeah. what happens over and over and over again. Go ahead, man. We spend a lot of time thinking about behaviorally, what's the best way to solve this? You know, And the one thing, and this is mentioned in the comments, that private equity does right, and this is uh, I think actually more of a feature than a bug is you're locked in for 10 years. Now mm -hmm. this is, there's good and there's bad to this. It's sort of a wink and a nod and a handshake between the managers and these institutions because they charge ungodly fees. And so, yeah. um, you know, that that's the downside. Now the good side is that there are products and concepts that I think uh, are beneficial. If you look at the annuity space in the United States the problem with the annuities, again, ungodly expensive, but there's some and they're unbelievably confusing. So you think about talking about personal finance is challenging, talking about ETFs or, you know, the basics of spending and investing. You go through annuities and it's like 400 pages of disclosures and fees and just it's a mess. But the concept of locking in money, avoiding taxes, low cost, I think allocation is sound. Say, hey, Put your money where your mouth is. You say you're really saving for an event that's in 10, 20, 30 years, lock it up. Um, and the we've explored some ideas we've talked about. I don't particularly want to launch them yet because I think we'll get sued. Uh, there was the forever fund idea we had, which was you invest, you're locked up for 10 years, um, and there's a penalty. So if you exit in year one, it's, I don't know, come up with a number of 10%, all, all the way down to year 10, in which case it's zero. 
So that's the, the hey, I got to behave part of it. But the carrot and stick part is that that money doesn't go to the fund manager. It goes to the remaining shareholders as a dividend. I think it's a really fun idea. So you get rewarded for other people being morons. Uh, I just think I, you know, I talked to, again, I was talking to Jason Zweig about it. And he's like, dude, you'll, you'll get sued. That is actually yeah. bad behavior instead of death. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's actually so if any listeners, Canadian mm-hmm. insurance policies. Yeah. So I don't, I, I mean, there, I don't know if, if the U S policies have the same thing, but if you're in a Canadian insurance policy and you opt for what they call dividends, those are the lapsed po- profits from lapsed policies that go to the holders of the insurance that stay longer. Now, again, as you point out, try and figure out, read, read an insurance policy and all the disclaimers. And, and uh, it, it, that's not in plain language. We'll, we'll, we'll speak very quickly about another area. Again, this is for the Americans. I don't know if you, you guys have anything like it. So let me know if you do. I think one of the most impactful pieces of legislation of the past decade could be the past few decades in uh in this investment world that 90 plus percent of people don't know about works to solve this problem. Now the problem is um, it for the most part has only been available to accredited investors and the accreditation rules in the U S are starting to move in the right direction. I still think it's, it, it's uh, it's been wealth-based. Now they're trying to do it a little bit of knowledge base. My idea is like, just put on online tests, DMV, let people, if they pass it, good, let them nuke their money. They can already nuke their money and futures options, Pink, pink sheet stocks, Forex, like, come on, private. So the, the concept is this this um, qualified small business uh, legislation that I think passed during the Obama years that basically says if you invest in a private company with less than $50 million in gross assets and you hold it, and I'm getting this broadly correct, and you hold it for five years, your gains are tax-exempt up to $10 million or... 10x your investment, whichever is greater. So think about that for a second. All of a sudden, to the extent you can put together a portfolio of private stocks and match the S&P. Now, we're not talking about investing your buddy's pizza place down the road and, you know, microbrew company uh, or the the equivalent in LA would be your buddy's movie. Like those are probably going to be zeros. But to the extent you can at least reasonably match um, that creates an interesting alignment. Now you got to do the work. Uh, there's lots of these platforms out there, but the extent uh, you have the lockbox, like you can't sell those. They may go public one day. They may get merged or bought. Ninety-five um, percent of the people don't know about it. I think it's an interesting hack. And there's other ways to do these things too with ETFs and uh, public market vehicles. But people spend very little time on these ideas because because it's hard. It's a lot of work to understand them and explain them and, and put them into practice too. Don't, don't you think that's one of the main ideas of, of why small business is so successful, right? So when you look at where the creation of wealth comes from, there's a, there's a pretty significant chunk that comes from the entrepreneurial nature of a business growing, uh, going public in some cases, often being taken out by a larger entity, which is we have a business that capital's in a lockbox. You go to work every day. Things get tough. You work harder. That's a little bit different in the investing world. Right. You, you, you double down, you think harder, you operate the business, uh, you grow that. And at the end of a 30 year uh, entrepreneurial journey, you have some sort of business, uh, you know, even even look at Cambria and uh, and the the company that you're building. Right. That that is sort of that long term 
deferred compounding of growth where you can't just take it out. You can't look at the price and say, hey, cash me out for 10% of that or, or something like that, right? It, so that the, the added tax benefit on that would be, I think, incredible. Although I do think there would be people who figure out how to gain that. Yeah. Well, we have a piece coming out that I haven't I haven't published, but it's basically ideas about policy and, and how to get a system that encourages the broad populace to own stocks and and have a um, have an interest in the uh, closing this wealth and income gap. You know, and so one of the ways you do that is you make everyone an investor and that has a share in the ownership of corporate America. That way, everyone's on the same side. Right now, you have less than half of the people in the U.S. own stocks. So Amazon and Apple, you see what's going on. They're hitting trillion dollars. Uh, super wealthy people are invested in stocks. You know, poor people, mainly it's just their house uh, if, if they even own that outright. And so coming up with policy ideas that get people to um, reward this concept of entrepreneurship, capitalism, free markets, so that uh, we can all have a stake and cheer for, uh, uh, you know, uh, free markets doing well. So we can all cheer for Elon as they become a trillion dollar company, but, um, but it's challenging, right? You'll never you know, extricate yeah. the fed from the market. If you do that, right. I mean, if, if it was tough before because of the wealth effect, because a, a section, the, the, the highest uh, uh, earning section of the population uh, couldn't deal with the wealth effect when the stocks go down. If, if you do that for the broad population, then forget it. The, 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 there's, the there's ways there's a, there's ways to solve it, though, and we should have done an idea if this was a drinking session to each one of us could have put in a word that the first time it gets said, everyone had to take a, a sip of their drink. Mine would have you been said. said. Um, <laughs> but uh, so there's plenty of ideas around that that I think are totally reasonable. Um, you know, I think uh, concepts like copying Australia's pension fund superannuation system is yeah. a fantastic system where you're opt. I mean, ours is so complicated. You opt in, you're forced into it. You save time. They love it. Everyone in Australia loves it. And they have a great retirement system. Um, there's three or four more ideas. We could spend all this time talking about policy. Uh, but I imagine you guys would rather talk about investments, but th there's ways I think around that, you know, people were talking about universal basic income. And I say, that's a horrible marketing angle. You know, it's like talking about the old school death insurance. You know, once they moved to life insurance, everyone bought it. Universal basic income doesn't check the box in the United States of people uh, of, of this concept of enterprise and thrift and building businesses. You know, I, there's a very negative connotation to welfare and handouts and socialism and communism. Right. Everyone just goes crazy hearing all those terms. But come up with something like um you know, the freedom dividend or, or where it's like, Hey, you have a stake in the GDP of America um, or, or the G whatever the country may be. You could tie it to like going back earlier, the long-term compounding, every baby born gets a thousand dollars and it goes in some sort of retirement. You get to see it grow. I mean, there's a million different ways I think to uh, solve this. Um, but, uh, but the, the goal you know, a few years ago, I was very negative um, many years ago on you see these sort of sentiment indicators. Oh, my God. Ashton Kusher is investing in startups now or uh, G cells talking about getting paid in euros like sentiment top turn. Uh, my opinions changed a little bit. You know, you see this culture of trickle down entrepreneurship and startup investing that um, I think is is one of the potential booms of our next you know generation where Silicon Valley, in my opinion, used to be a place. And all of a sudden, this concept of building businesses through the accelerators, through 
people selling these businesses for a hundred million, a billion dollars, and then all of a sudden become investors in a million other companies. It's spreading to other countries. You're seeing it pretty quickly in Africa take root pretty uh, pretty strongly over the past few weeks, um, and some of these big fintech deals. I'm super bullish on that. My point being, at, at its core, uh, you want people to all feel part of the system. In an, in uh, it. Because right now, a lot of people just don't. They, they don't feel like they're part of part of the uh, investing uh, benefits. Aside from the uh, good marketing angle to overcome the behavior hurdles and all that fun stuff, I wanted to go back to your original question and to see what your answers are for what the vast majority of people aren't looking, but you feel are good opportunities for the coming years. Um, okay. Let me give you a few brain teasers that will uh, – that. I think a lot of no one agrees with. Um, if you were to ask people, you poll. And by the way, I had to pay someone on Upwork uh, to, to search for this because I couldn't figure out how to find all my old polls. Um, and, and Upwork, if you guys haven't used it, it's the most amazing thing. I hired a guy in Poland to scan all the recipes on the internet to become up with a rankable recipe sorter. So if you guys want to know what the world's top recipes are, uh, I, can, I can pass them along. Anyway, check out Upwork, unrelated. So I had him look at some of these polls. And one of the polls is, what do you do with your safe money? Everyone puts it in cash, T-bills, right? Like that's the safest place. Uh, but in reality, if you look at the statistics, it's not. And so on a nominal basis, T-bills re- really never lose money. Uh, but over a long time period, we say, what's the biggest drawdown after inflation? And everyone said zero, five percent, less than 10 percent. And the answer is close to half. Uh, the 10-year bond had a real drawdown after inflation of, I think, closer to 60 percent. So, but what do most people do with their, their safe money? They put it in cash at the bank. Well, cash in the bank, I'm a like super high tier Bank of America rewards and I get 0.04%, um, you know, uh, so essentially zero. And that that's a cost each year. And we kind of went through a post and showed if you were just willing to, to go through the exercise of, uh, you know, suspending disbelief for a minute that um, you could do it even a 60-40, but mo- better is like a global market portfolio. So call it half stocks, half bonds, half US, half X US over time. Um, and you look at all the metrics. So you look at maximum real drawdown, you look at volatility, you look at worst 10 month, uh, 12 month period, you look at um, uh, percent of positive months, and you find that you can come up and add, let's call it about three percentage points over cash with hardly any more volatility a lower maximum drawdown, similar amount of positive months, and similar worst 12 months. Um, and so you then make the stretch. You should be investing all of your safe money cash if you want to make that extension. Now, no one will do this other than me. I know of one other person that does this, by the way, um, and he's insane. So, uh, But this is a departure. As you think about things that are safe or not safe, thinking in terms of nominal versus uh, real inflation, so going back to the endowment, endowments understand this. The two big risks for most people, and you, I may have heard you guys say this, uh, so I'll give you credit if it was, like two big risks of a portfolio, inflation over time eroding, uh, eroding that portfolio or a depression style problem to the, oh, where the portfolio loses 80%. Is that you guys? I'll give you credit if it was. Um, so that's an idea. And in that world right now, obviously I love stock valuations. Uh, we believe that, you know, foreign markets in particular emerging markets and some of the cheapest countries I've been saying this for years. So <laughs> yeah, uh, it hasn't happened yet. Although it seems to be turning last few months uh, since April, maybe 
Uh, I think they can still do double-digit returns uh, over the next decade. I think the U.S. is is going to be facing significant headwinds, though. What was interesting because that, that the funny belief there is I was at a, I think I've told this story before. I was at a, a meeting uh, of portfolio managers with uh, Schiller, and someone was talking about the valuations of you know markets and how are we going to get returns? And he simply said, "What do you mean? Like the valuations of markets are wonderful, Czech Republic." Russia. He went through the list of all the, you know, single digit uh, multiple countries and the, the whole room sort of giggled out loud. And he was being dead serious. He's like, there, there are fantastic valuations and long term opportunities. The markets aren't aren't over. What market? Which market are you referring to? And uh, it is it is we come back to those behavioral bias. I'm not familiar with it. It hasn't done well. Uh, so I've got my recency bias. I've got my overconfidence bias in the current paradigm. Um, home you know, country. What, yeah. Home, what, what chance does a guy have? You mean you don't want to own any of those things? <laughs> Why do you think that they're likely to earn a good return? <laughs> yeah. Tobacco stocks in 1999, exactly as, as CalPERS you know, swore off tobacco, uh, ESG, oil and gas stocks today. I mean, there's there's some parallels around. I do so- think that um, just like re- returning to sort of the, the the higher order question, right? Like, why is it so hard for investors to stick to um, investments or plan or what have you? And I think the, the great conceit that we all know because we've lived it through many interactions with investors over the years, the great conceit is that investors are in some way, mean variance optimizers, right? That they actually care about efficient portfolios. And I think the reality is, um, and, and Eric Falkenstein's got a, just an absolutely brilliant uh, paper on this, but I, I think all the research suggests that, in fact, the uh, objective function is is status-seeking, relative status-seeking. So like, if, if investors really just want to avoid being poorer than their neighbors and they're not actually concerned with maximizing their own personal wealth and minimizing the chance of loss, then all of the different optimization methods and portfolio construction methods and, and asset allocation approaches and all that other stuff that we all support and advocate uh, go out the window, right? What 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 ends up being the um, most efficient portfolio is in fact for many investors, 100% in US stocks because that allows them to have the least likelihood of falling behind their neighbors who are also invested mostly in U.S. stocks. And um, so I think we've got to be humble about what we are are targeting for investors. I think like certainly yeah. at Resolve, we always focus on what's optimal from a mean variance perspective um, and sort of scratch our heads about why people never actually behave in a way that's consistent with those objectives. But from a practical standpoint, all the literature suggests that nobody gives a shit, that everyone just cares about what their neighbors are doing. And they just don't want to fall behind. So it's a great, it's a great point. Like that probably is the number one question. What's the objective function? For the investor. And there's so much preference falsification. Everyone says it. They, yeah, yeah, they don't care. Or they, yeah, they want to maximize wealth or they just want to pay for retirement. But that's bullshit, right? It's just- well, they say that because their friends say that. Well, sure. And they, they think that that's what they should be saying. And that's what you yeah. want to hear as a professional, right? But but that's not actually at all what they want. And um, and so you need to sort of read between the lines and and, uh, and invest between the lines, so to speak, rather than trying to take things at face value sometimes. Preference falsification would have been my second phrase for drinking today on the, on the I, podcast. Honestly, I would, I would have chosen MMT. 
because good one. as soon as that genie comes open, that's got to be said a million times. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, Deb, I thought you might go down uh, some Bitcoin or cannabis or some other uh, different path on your uh, out of the box ideas, I guess, because cannabis is so out of favor. Although if you're reading into the FinTwitch space, Bitcoin is definitely not a contrarian idea by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's a couple of things wrapped in this, you know, as Mike mentioned, every asset class at some point, uh, is dear. And at other times, you know, wonderful, terrible, everything, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, Schiller actually wrote a paper looking at sectors as well, going back to the early part of the, the 20th century. And there was a period that like boring old utilities traded at a cape ratio, you know, in the roaring twenties of like 60 or something. And then fast forward three years, they were at five. Uh, so you can have a bubble in, in the most boring stuff in the world. And, you know, look, look, the the whole point of free markets and capitalism and the way this works, uh, you know, you go back, we were sitting around here, 1899, sipping tea or champagne. I mean, you invest in the U the UK was the biggest stock market. US was second. Uh, and I don't think anyone would have predicted the US going from 5% of world market cap to 55 today. Mm -hmm. You know, you certainly probably would have bet on Germany and France and Switzerland and all these other countries, Argentina. Uh, but it was like 75 percent rail stocks. Like that's what your market cap portfolio is. Rails now are like less than one percent. Um, they've done great. They beat the overall market over that period. Tobacco stocks, single best returning industry of all time. Uh, you know, that's near and dear to my heart as a. A uh, partial Winston-Salem, North Carolina resident where uh, my high school is named after. Uh, I literally went to R.J. Reynolds High School. So <laughs> literally named after essentially a tobacco company. Um, but uh, but the lessons you learn is that constant is a change. And so, you know, the the beauty of buying the entire market, market cap index of the world and there's been a lot of great literature the last 10 years on this that I think is, is open a lot of people's eyes. Everyone in private equity and VC understands power laws. You know, you invest in uh, 50 or hundred companies. It's the one or two Ubers that generate all of the return. And that's hard to get your head around. It's also true in public markets. And so uh, it's like five or 10% of the returns of the entire market is dominated by these stocks. So you kind of have to own them. That's why market cap weighted indexing works. Historically, you're guaranteed to own the winners. It's like two thirds of stocks underperform the index. Almost half have 0% rate of return and like a quarter goes straight up to zero. Um, I don't think it's optimal or ideal, because it overweights it bubbles and underweights busts. You know, so the examples you give when energy was at 30% of the S&P, you had 30% of your money in energy. Well, now that's 2%. Uh, it's Japan, good that's what gives you the yeah. upside though, right? It's the, it's the market cap waiting that buys more and more and more of it all the way up. It's the most, most beautiful trend following index of all time. Um, but yeah. on the flip side, you have things like Japan where, you know, the biggest bubble we've ever seen hit a P ratio cape of almost 100 in the 80s and uh, now, just now, really essentially last few years, breaking out to uh, levels 30 years later. Again, this is a top three world economy, once the world's biggest stock market. So the problem with the market cap, the good part, you can go to a cocktail party, say, I own Tesla, I own Amazon. You're guaranteed to own the winners. The problem is there's no fundamental tether to valuation, earnings, sales. So kind of combining the two, coming up with any uh, investing approach that will give you the upside of owning the big 10, 100, 1,000 baggers 
which which you have to. By the way, if you own them individually, zero chance you keep those till they hit 100 bagger status. We did a another poll where we said, people, what's the best investment you've ever had? And everyone, for the most part, was you know up to 10x uh, sort of returns because damn it, you invest in something. I mean, look at Bitcoin right now. It doubles. Oh my God, everyone, like the world is going to go insane. There's stocks all the time that go 10, 100x. It usually takes a decade. And the problem is these massive compounders is people want to sell them all the way up. But um, but anyway, well, they, indexing they also, guarantees you don't. They, they also have massive corrections, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon had, I think it's more than three, 75% plus corrections on the way to where it sits today. So how many of those are you going to sit through, right? To, to get to where it is there, right? You, some people did, but they were, you know, Jeff Bezos, right? So him and a few other insiders, but as an outside investor, uh, it, it, it got a little out of hand in 2000. And how did you know that you, you didn't own like Yahoo? Like, how, how did you know it was Amazon, at that time. This is, and this is why we need to come up with an ETF lockbox concept. You know, the, the yeah. generational wealth areas, real estate, farmland, um, private equity, like people get it. And, you know, they they understand this concept. But with public markets, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> it's so hard yeah. to own uh, things when they go up. So true. Man, shifting gears slightly and... Uh, Maybe this is what one other one of the words that uh, is going to spring a drinking uh, behavior here. But uh, do you give any thought about uh, the possibility that we're going through some form of a phase shift in markets or sort of a paradigm shift to use a term that's been bitten to death? And, and, and how, from a systematic perspective, do you, do you think about that through your models and how you might approach uh, uh, a, a new normal, a new reality of, uh, of maybe central bank forces plus some of these liquidity aspects uh, going by Corey's uh, liquidity cascades paper, just some of these different forces that appear to be changing market behavior. How do you think about that? Um, I have a, a tweet thread that I was reviewing prior to this about a year ago that listed a bunch of my beliefs that are not consensus, meaning you know, 80% of people, pros, don't believe it. And one that I think everyone hates as uh, I'm like, Fed's done just fine. I mean, people go, I mean, everyone, everyone goes crazy about that. But my opinion is, look, markets, uh, Fed's been around for over 100 years. Central banks have been mucking around with things. I mean, we've only had a floating currency system for, what, 50 years? <laughs> like, people love to, like, act like we've had, like, a gazillion years of financial markets to draw uh, conclusions from. And, I mean, it's not that much time. It sounds like a lot of time. It's not that much time. Um, and we love to talk about, you know, prior to this year, uh, we had a tweet that said something along the lines of, you know, it's interesting, decade ends often mark uh, inflection points. I said in the 80s was this the biggest equity bubble we've ever seen. The 90s was this uh, Internet year 2000. The 2000s was global financial crisis. Wonder what the 2000s are, or the 2020s are going to bring, you know, and sure enough, one month in we have a pandemic. So um, that wasn't. Uh, like forecasting anything. It's just the constant of markets being, you know, new every day. And so we always talk about a client letter, you know, every time things go wrong as advisors, we love to reach out to clients, say, no, no, we've modeled this. We've seen this before. It's okay. And I joke that the way it should be written is like, it's okay, clients. We've never seen this before because every day, every month is going to be something new this year, fastest ever from all time high to bear market and boom, right back. 
Uh, so you're going to constantly see things that no one's ever seen before. Maybe Bitcoin goes to a million bucks and we move away from a fiat system like it's possible. So you try to come up with the probabilities. I think the biggest problem for most investors is they adhere to uh, a, a future that they label as, as certain, you know, that whatever their approach may be. And they don't consider the possibilities. 1917, Russia says, thank you very much. Markets close. 1949, China says, thank you very much. Markets close. Um, and on and on and on. You know, you can have uh, government saying, nope, short selling is illegal, yada, 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 taking over companies, um, but also on the optimistic side, you know, uh, of things that get invented, new approaches. Um, so I think the theme of regime change is always constant. I think you will be dealing with weird shit going forward every single day. That's what makes our job interesting and coming up with possibilities to manage assets that's, you know, pick your phrase, anti-fragile, robust, uh, that can just survive. Like that's, that's, I mean, that's the big part, right? Not to get carried out. All the gamblers know this. Um, we said on Twitter the other day, most investors would be better suited to be less uh, Nostradamus and more Rip Van Winkle. Come up with an approach that considers the possible outcomes. And that's what most people don't, you know, they say, I expect 15% stock returns. That's going to happen. Boom. Something else happens. Um, I expect, I mean, look at bonds. Bonds is the weirdest, uh, you know, sort of, if you were rewind 10 years and ask me, what does the future look like? And you're like, all the sovereigns in the world are negative. I'd say that's, that's pretty weird. You can get a mortgage in some countries negative. I wouldn't have predicted that. So anyway, um, it's a, uh, you know, my, my belief is there's always going to be regime change and you just have to be willing and, and hopefully set up to, to survive it. Dear I'm client, note, actually, I'm something went wrong. Mm-hmm. That's why, why you're we- getting this letter. Yeah, and we right. had no idea that this thing was going to go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something else will eventually go wrong and we won't know about that either. But um, some things will go right and right. we won't know about those either. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I remember going back to your, um, you know, paper, whatever, 2008 or 2006 or whatever, and, and with your 10, 10-month moving average, et cetera. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did you have a commodities sleeve in that original paper? I, I may be wrong on that. But mm-hmm. e- either way, I'm just wondering, like, what what are your thoughts on on commodities, right? Because I, I, you sort of you, you talked about how a, a global stock bond portfolio, 50-50, international, U.S., whatever, um, was relatively relatively resilient and and had very manageable drawdowns, et cetera. I think the the worst period was the 1970s, right? <clears throat> so I'm just wondering, like, what are, what do you see as the role of commodities, or like, what what are your what's your view on that in a portfolio? I'm uh, I'm just at, at this point trying to to poke Adam with with alternative views that are going to cause him to have a conniption by the end of the day. Um, so uh, starting with the Fed. Um, you know, I love that, that paper. <laughs> that pa- by the way, my, my opinion on the Fed, by the way, is it also should just be automated. I think their policy uh, target should be also a robot, but that's neither here nor there. Um, thinking about, by the way, one more comment, and then we'll jump onto the paper. Thinking about a comment on on going back to the very beginning of our discussion, talking about what's possible and outcomes. Barron's had a recent poll where they said, "Where do you expect you know interest rates to be?" They didn't even have negative as a choice. So what's like, what would really just drive people insane is U.S. treasuries go negative at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
possible, probable, who knows, but just that's a funny data point we can come back to. So that old paper, look, you know, um, this concept of trend following, um, we already talked about market cap weighted indexes being the ultimate trend following exposure, then applying it to entire asset classes. We we picked five out of a hat back then. Again, I was in my 20s at this point, was trying to avoid taking a test, writing this paper, didn't want to write a paper, never written a paper before, uh, had to get it in by the deadline, December 31st. It's like, what can I write about? Let's pick five asset classes, um, you know, five just big ones. And uh, it was uh, U.S. stocks, ex-U.S. stocks, bonds, REITs, commodities. Um, the asset class really doesn't matter, by the way. Um, and then we'll get to your concept about commodities. We did a retrospective 10 years later on this paper. Uh, and it's um, it's been interesting, you know, um, depending as you guys talk a lot about with ensembles, about composites, you know, any one indicator, uh, certainly something like if you apply the 10 month or the daily equivalent, 200 day moving average, you apply it to one asset class like US stocks, 1987, 200 day and quicker, you were out, you missed it. Hallelujah, career maker. 200 day or longer, you sat through the crash. not as bad as I, I remember hearing Jim O'Shaughnessy talk about. He had a huge put position on the S&P and sold it the day before the crash. Yep, it's one of my I favorite stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but trend following in general, on average, and I think 2020 is a great example, you know, um, it does its job over these long bear markets. Um, we wrote a tangential tangential paper. One of my superhuman abilities is mispronouncing words, by the way. Um this year that no one read because we published it sort of near the, I think the, the pandemic peak apocalypse was um, investing at all time highs. And it's such a fun paper because most people, when you think about, because markets were hitting all time highs in January and I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. But the reality was that you invest at all time highs and you give it a buffer like 5% or something. Does a monthly close within 5% of all time highs. Otherwise you sit in cash. Every single asset class crushes buy and hold. Uh, 12 month, you do a 12 month look back, also crushes buy and hold. Uh, and the whole concept of trend following and channel breakouts been back, been around since the time of Charles Dow 100 years ago, Donkey in 70 years ago. This is just not sitting and holding things that go down 90%. So um, you stay in the game. And, and that's sort of the takeaway from the paper. Commodities, you know, are, are a little different because, as you know, uh, as a farmer that I am, um, as I know, you know, you can't necessarily replicate spot in the world. So then you have the financialization of all these contracts with futures. Then you're introducing things like contango and backwardation. Um, we've had kind of both sides of that discussion on the podcast of people, uh, you know, that are like, this is the worst idea in history to invest in commodities through, uh, futures contracts and other people that wrote the original papers and said, you know, it's actually a great portfolio diversifier. Uh, my opinion on commodities specifically is they're probably more, um, amenable to, to trading, uh, than, than long-term holding. Although I think they're fine. Uh, for long-term holding. I don't think you're getting equity returns. Uh, and if you disconstruct the holdings and we'll bore everyone to death with this, of course, uh, you know, a big portion of that historically has been the collateral yield. But I think that's true with everything. And I don't know that other people believe this, but I think a big agree. portion yes. of stocks, of bonds, of everything. Yep. In, a, in a world of 10% bond returns, bonds 
you know, and, and it's not actually the bonds, it's the inflation usually. So they're tied at the hip anyway. Um, so things like gold, you know, again, um, I, I think the takeaway and why I model my own personal portfolio after a 2000 year old investment strategy based on the Talmud, Talmud. is about Talmud. See, I don't know. I can't pronounce it. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I said, this oh, I don't know either. My wife yeah. is Jewish. I, I got to ask her. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's basically like every man invests a third in business, a third in, um, I forget what they call it, real land. Like housing, yeah, real, yeah, land, and a third land, in land keeping and reserve. Building. Yeah, and I try to model my own personal after that because you know, um, businesses, stocks, private equity, startups, uh, cash reserve sort of concepts, and then, um, and then real assets. And most people, real assets is their house but also commercial real estate. The two biggest, by the way, of the global market portfolio, um, the two biggest areas that are not well represented, I think, are farmland and single family housing. Uh, most people already have the single family housing. It's not diversified. They just own their house, but, but getting exposure to those two. Uh, so however you approach the real assets could be through tips. It could be through a combination of all these things. Um, you know, the commodity futures was such a fantastic example of the institution. You know, every three years you go to these conferences, they get obsessed with something. 2005, 2007, oh my God, were they falling over each other for commodity exposure? And for the most part, CalPERS and a lot of these others have pu- now puked it up. They're like, that was so stupid, sell. So it's probably a great time to be buying them. Um, it's just a little more problematic, the execution of it, right? You guys all, I'm sure, are sitting on a pile of gold bars being Canadian under your chairs. So, uh, it's a little different, but um, I think the concept of real assets is sound. The execution is a little harder. Yep, fair, fair point. On the commodity side too, it's sometimes the cons- the construction matters, right? One of the surprises we just wrote this paper on rebalancing premium, but one of the surprises is just how diverse the commodity universe is, and if you can take advantage of that diversity a little more thoughtfully, then you can even if the Actual commodities on average have a zero compound rate of return. You may be able to generate two, two and a half percent compound growth just from the rebalancing premium on on seven or eight different independent sort of commodity bets over time. So that was an interesting um, realization and another sort of reason to to maybe consider a strategic allocation to the right kind of commodity portfolio. And and as you say, right, commodities hedge a, a certain type of risk. Um, but then housing and, and tips and other uh, different asset classes can can also play an important role in different types of inflationary environments. So you've got to be humble about the bets you're taking. Well Tell said, me. Adam, what else can we argue about? We need something. Uh, yeah, I've, I've resisted. You've, you've laid a couple of easy ones <laughs> out there for me, but I, I'm you know, it's the day before Thanksgiving, and and uh, we're such a friendly bunch on the Resolve Riffs uh, broadcast. We, we don't like to get in arguments. You know, I thought Deb, <laughs> I thought Deb was going to pick up on the Bitcoin thread that I dropped uh, a few minutes ago, but I got nothing from him. Maybe I'm, I'm the only person. I will explain my uh, my approach to Bitcoin. I also think I'm the only person on the planet that believes this. Um, that has these four criteria. One, I've been a long-term proponent. People have seen me talk about it for forever. Uh, we used to have pay with Bitcoin on our idea farm service like seven years ago. 
as a somewhat broadly libertarian free markets kind of guy, I like the concept. I, there's nothing I love more than poking fun of my crypto friends because on average they're absolutely insufferable. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, so I, it's just like, I can't even with, with them that I've been said. And I, you guys know, I, I mean, I write a yearly, uh, article. I talk about how I invest, you know, and, and for the first time ever bought, uh, a handful of crypto this year. Um, but lastly, so I find people insufferable that own it. I own it, but I find it incredibly, and this is, people are going to, you know, dunk on me for this endlessly. You don't understand it, whatever. I find it absolutely and totally disinteresting. I think it's one of the least interesting things on the planet to me. It's like a distributed, you know, I I get it. And I I did a tweet a few years ago and I said something along the lines of, you can come up with bubbles in anything. It was like, you know, Pokemon cards, Cabbage Bats kids, online databases and distributed ledgers, like, like just worked it in there. Um, (laughs) But I also like, you know, going back to this concept of, from an investment standpoint, you know, again, my article, all time highs, not bearish. If it's hitting all time highs, like God bless you, own it. Good, good for you. The thing is like, if you were to ask me, Meb, would you rather have a portfolio of a hundred amazing startups that are trading at say $10 million valuation that found product market fit, have a million dollars in revenue or changing the world and doing cool shit. There's companies like, you know, building the next commercial space station uh, companies trying to solve loneliness by connecting uh, seniors with with young university age uh, students to to help them get like on and on and on. <laughs> and by the way, those have the potential to go a hundred x, a thousand x. Like in every possible scenario, I want the basket of startups. That having been said, the advice that I give to people because I'm allowed to give advice. It's not my show today. Over the years. <laughs> People just asked me, you know, maybe it was two years ago. They're starting to ask again. They haven't asked and they asked two years when Bitcoin was at 3,000. They asked when it was at 20 and they're asking again now. I say, look, you want to buy some? Own it as a portion of the global market portfolio, which I think around now all the crypto combined is about 0.1%. So I go, you want to go wild and crazy, buy 1%. And guess what? It 10Xs, it's now 10% of your portfolio. It 100, like it'll get bigger good for you. It goes to zero. Same, but this applies to everything. Like the person that wants to put all their money to Apple, I tell them the same thing. I'm like, dude, that's, you know, buy a little bit. But uh, so anyway, that was my short summary. <laughs> Actually, I, I managed to offend everyone in that. Satiate, yeah. Satiate no, your tracking yeah. error. Cause <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a status seeking, like all the, all the, you know, all, all the hodlers are going to be out there. They're going to have it all. And the, the, that's my, their, that's their group. Not and to I'm mention sorry. he he slipped in right in there a reference to Sugar Daddy Company Startup, which oh yeah, uh, no, I, I heard that. Oh no, 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 it's called Papa. It's called Papa. It's like an Uber for loneliness. <laughs> Grant, no, it's it's not that one. It's a uh, it's it's one of my favorite ideas. It's like it's not Poppy. It's Papa. Like okay. they'll take you to go get they'll take you to go get your groceries. They're having explosive growth. They're crushing it. They'll you want to go hang out and play chess. Like one of the biggest problems of the pandemic is is um, that is revealed is a big problem with mental health and loneliness, you know? And I think, um, you know, not just with drugs and alcohol, but applied to so many different ways. And I've invested in a ton of startups that 
are trying to uh, attack that from all sorts of different angles. I love this one as one. Hey, if 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 it ends up being highly attractive, 20 year old co-ed boys and girls, uh, God bless them. <laughs> but it's merely meant to take care of your groceries and hang out. Yeah. Um, I had something to say and you totally derailed it. What was I talking about? Um, Oh, I know what it was. There's there's two parts of the crypto story that I find uh, that I love to tease people. One is we have the HODL ticker. So anytime anybody wants to launch an ETF uh, in the crypto space, uh, talk to me. Um, (laughs) But uh, God, what was the other thing? Oh, my favorite tweet of all time. And I, I was poking the crypto community. I was hanging out with Jeremy Schwartz of Wisdom Tree in Switzerland. That sounds so insufferable to say, but I was randomly giving a talk in Switzerland. He was in Switzerland, posted on Twitter. He's like, I'm here. So like we went and uh, met somewhere and had a, had a cocktail. It was freezing cold outside, made fun of him because he, the cocktail he ordered was, was like, it was like pink and came with a spoon. Um, <laughs> but I was teasing him and I said, uh, I posted a photo of us and I said, Jeremy's here talking about how they're getting ready to launch a Litecoin ETF. And this was at like peak crypto mania. And oh my God, the internet just went insane. They were so excited. And then once oh my gosh. like the next morning, Jeremy wakes up. He's like, dude, you have to tell people that wasn't true. I'm like, I don't know. It's not true. You guys might launch one. I mean, like, and if Jeremy's like <laughs> trying to like 20. Yeah. He, <laughs> he's trying to do damage control. Be like, no, he's kidding. And, uh, and the amount of hate and DMS I got from that one tweet was, uh, <laughs> yeah, but wisdom tree, if you're listening, I don't know that you're not uh, going to launch a Litecoin ETF. So TBD <laughs> fan <laughs> just launched one in uh, Europe today. So good for yeah. them. Who knows? I know they're bringing out an uh, Ethereum one in Canada too. Mm-hmm. They're launching another, got the Bitcoin, uh, Close in trust. They raised a bunch of money in the Bitcoin ETF here in Canada. Yeah, Sixty trades million. A, yeah, trades at a big premium as usual. And my my favorite way to tease the crypto I've listed like nine already is to say back when people took uh, airplane flights, as I would say, I'm about to go mine a bunch of uh, uh, cryptocurrency, old school best cryptocurrency in the world, United Air Miles. What was it called? <laughs> Mileage Plus. And I'm like, the good news about this is I can actually use it for something. Like it's an actual currency I can. <laughs> fly around the world with bitcoin it's like impossible to do anything uh and transact with it but uh, frequent flyer miles favorite crypto prediction for the next 10 years <laughs> yep. they're all going to go on the distributed ledger as you say yeah exactly oh that's awesome is that it i don't know any, I booked, any other hot topics I booked four hours what else are we talking about <laughs> let's do it. i had something else i was going to ask you but i, I was going to let you off the hook being pre Thanksgiving, but I was wondering whether as, as a podcast host, I, I find you have all these conversations and, and you're always asking questions. And I, I always wonder like, is there you spending so much of your time as a podcast host? Um, and let, and obviously much less time by definition on the other side. And I'm just wondering, is there anything that you kind of, you wish that you were asked more frequently or that you never get asked or that you're dying to talk about? Um, that uh, you never get a chance because you're always on the other I, side. I of think a, I think a good question that to talk to people about, no matter what, is in a universal one. Is just kind of like, what are you excited about? Um, you know, what are you working on these days? And you can see people light up about you know uh, whatever it is they're into. It could be rugby. It could be uh, you know coming up with some new recipe startup. Like who knows what it is. Um, that's always a fun question to me because it, it gets people talking about something they may not have even revealed publicly. Anything you guys got up behind your brain that you're working on? Adam usually puts out like a 
400 page uh, something other every every once in a while with the most beautiful graphics. You guys put out one this year, didn't you? Two, I think. Yeah, we put out maybe three. Actually, I think we did a, a portfolio optimization on stocks, and then we did a risk parity paper um, and how to evaluate risk parity strategies, and then we an appendix on the rebalancing premium of risk parity uh, oh. uh, strategies, but. You were you said you're working on a paper, right? On on I'm actually super curious to learn more about that if you're actually interested in talking about it on on policy. Like oh, what are the core, what are there three or four key themes that you're gonna hammer on? Or? Yeah. So, you know, um, and by the way, when you guys want the domains risk party and risk parity, I have both. You guys can have them. <laughs> risk parity I sold. Somebody in Switzerland owns it now. Um, you know I like risk party better. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Like when it's crushing it, just be like, let's go. Risk risk party, party is on. Um, <laughs> you know, my my favorite thing and, and you guys as a fund manager are um, in this boat is is ideas that are actionable. So something you can actually like put to work. I mean, the vast majority of Twitter, um, not just in the investment world, politics is like people are amazing at the diagnosis. Here's the problem. Rant all day. Rant, 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 rant. Um, and politicians are incredible at, at short-term fixes. Uh, what they're not great at is, I think, the the prescription. You know, I, uh, I got into a big fight a few years ago publicly, was speaking at a university with um, one of the, the mutual fund cults, and on and on and on about passive and active. Oh, my God. Just like he... Um, and like he had some of the right diagnosis correct, but the prescription had you followed his advice was that you should fire him and hire someone else because he charged some just insane fee just to do buy and hold. So you always got to be careful between like, here's the problem and then extend it to what's the actual solution. Um, you know, and, and a lot of things, uh, it doesn't have to be world changing. It could be something pretty simple. Uh, let me see if I can even find um, my post. Um, you know, the big white whale for me, of course, is is the education. The fact that we don't teach personal finance. It's like 12% of schools in the U.S. is so embarrassing uh, that it's just like I can't even begin. And the way to frame it would be something like, you know, money and freedom. Um, personal finance, barf. Like who's and, and people always come back at me and say, no, no, it fails you teach personal finance to prove that it doesn't work. And I say, well, there's two problems with that you're either teaching the wrong curriculum or the teachers are bad or whatever. And one of the benefits of 2020 will be that as education moves online, instead of a 10 million terror, you know, teachers where some are not great, hopefully some of the best teachers and curriculums bubble up to where everyone can, can participate. Yeah. So in many of these cases, I post both a like public mo- public policy solution but also, hey, private market, I think there's a massive opportunity for what we call like, and we wrote about this like five years ago, Rosetta Stone for investing. Uh, you want to teach someone a coursework on how to do the basics of personal finance and investing. I mean, look, Dave Ramsey does like 100 or $200 million of revenue per year, uh, you know, teaching it. And it's his brand and there's things he does wonderful and there's things he, you know, I disagree with. Um, but, uh, but the possibility is there, I think for, for things like that, that that's one to me that is really, um, isn't this just an extension of Khan Academy? Like when, why is it? Yeah. But but like, like, look at masterclass, they teach all these courses about, um, cooking and 
creative and chess, you know, how many there are in personal finance investing, zero, you know, and, and on and on and on. Uh, so it's an opportunity. I don't want to do it too much work. You guys can do it for Canada. <laughs> I, I don't want to do it too much work, but someone will solve it and they'll make billions of dollars. Um, so that's one teach money in school. And, and the concept, by the way, like it's becoming more and more clear, I think too, where so many famous artists, celebrities, athletes are all becoming rich zero of them from their career, you know, and you can just go down the list. Uh, Kanye, um, Jay-Z, Federer, um, George, George Clooney, Clooney yeah. Ashton Kutcher, on and on and on. And someone should write a book. I think you could even co-opt the Jay-Z phrase. I'm a, I'm a business man and profile a lot of these famous because oh, that yeah. resonates with people. Like if you're, uh, so many people see the possibility is, is totally, um, of wealth building is, is insurmountable. So that's one. Um, I mentioned earlier this concept of the freedom dividend. Again, there's like a thousand permutations on that. Uh, you know, there's another one that I think is interesting. Uh, what's the lottery situation in Canada like? You guys got a, a standard lottery? Oh, oh, we love the lottery. Oh, we spend a lot of money. It's government owned. It makes a lot of money. Is it scratchers? Yeah. Is it like Powerball sort of thing? Uh, all of it. All of it's, okay. And it's also not taxable. So when you win, you don't pay tax. Oh, that's pretty dope. Well, I mean, look, let's be honest. What's the problem with the lottery? Um, it's a tax on being stupid, you know, to be fair. But yeah. it's also a tax that's pretty it's a predatory. Tax. It's predatory on low-income people because yeah. often, you know, if you have no money and you can't pay the bills, like to have the fantasy, like you're never, it's insurmountable. You can never get out from under this. Uh, and like the average person in the U S spends like 500 bucks a year on lottery. And then you, the active players are, it's like $2,000. Um, so if you were to ask politicians say, Hey, look, this is clearly predatory. Uh, there's some better systems. The reason none of them give it up is the revenue you mentioned, like they, they're addicted. There's zero chance they'll give up that. There's some other systems elsewhere in the world, UK, South Africa, that have these concepts of, um, savings-based lotteries to where uh, you play the lottery or you, you put in a deposit. So I invested in one called Yada Savings. Uh, you invest and they do a weekly prize drawing and you win anywhere from 10 cents to up to $10 million. And uh, they're not paying you out savings percent, which you're not getting anyway, but they use that spread to fund this lottery. Uh, so it's a pretty cool idea that instead of you buy a lottery ticket, you and me lose 50 cents or some, I think the expected value, like 50 cents, right? This has actually been hugely popular for decades in the UK. They've done this um, prize link savings. I think someone could do it where they'd link it to uh, prize link investing. So, hey, you're in a lottery, you get a ball each night, whatever. Um, but the remainder balance, it goes into your uh, investing account. And hopefully it's something you couldn't touch. Again, these are fintech ideas I don't want to do. I would love to see someone do it. But but we have to be honest. you know. And the problem with a lot of these um, uh, savings apps that are hugely popular in the US, amazing businesses, fantastic for VCs, absolutely, I think, atrocious for actual savers. Uh, the average account balance on a lot of these is like a hundred bucks and they, they charge a dollar a month, $2 a month, $3 a month. So what are you paying for your savings account? Well, you're paying 10, 20% a year. Like that's insane. Uh, and I get totally ratioed on Twitter. If I talk about this, people lose, like it's, it's the exact opposite of what people think. Um, but I think there's a lot of ideas. They all tackle different parts, right. Of this sort of problem that we're coming at. Um, 
But the big one is we got to get people at least a little bit educated, I think. And, so, and, then, and then lastly is to have systems that nudge you in the right direction. Incentives, yeah. So I'll incentives. take, not surprisingly, maybe the other side of it. Like, it seems like we, we educate kids all the way up through school on how to eat healthily and, and, the, and you know, the, they go to phys ed class and they, and they learn how to take care of at least the basics of, of physical exercise and, you know, get outside and go, go hiking or go walking or whatever. And, uh, you know, it, we've got an obesity epidemic and a healthcare epidemic in, um, most Western countries. Hey man. Hey guys. Um, so, I mean, why, why would we think, I mean, I, I personally think that the, one of the greatest policy errors of the last 50 years was the privatization of retirement savings. You know, one of the great things about Australia's superannuation program is that there are very few choices, you know, that, that Australians sort of, they have a program that the government sets up and they, 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 the default is you're going to, we're going to dock your pay and it's going to go into one of these programs, et cetera. And I mean, it just seems like I, you know, you sort of advocate for for libertarianism and free markets. I won't even go there with how inconsistent that is with the Fed. Your your views that the Fed policy, but like I just don't think that that most people, even educated, will um, have the discipline or mindset or or you know in general to make those active decisions without basically most of them just being defaults. Okay, let me give you a quick response to that. Hello, Rod. Hey, By the way, I'm going to compliment you guys on your choice of microphones. Uh, I'm not going to say that they have a particular aesthetic, um, <laughs> but uh, they do. Uh, all right. I don't know where you grew up. I grew up uh, eating Fruit Loops for breakfast. I grew up uh, with the food pyramid in the United States, which said – you should base your diet on 17 different carbs uh, per day. And then at the very top is like, you should, whatever you do, don't eat red meat. And we've learned over the course of history, over the course of history that's probably not correct. I actually did a, a tweet the other day. It was like, which was the biggest lie of my childhood as a child of the eighties. And it was like the war on drugs, um, essentially like sugar is great uh, and, and fat is bad. What was the third one? I can't Santa remember. Santa Claus? Uh, Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, uh, make it? No, I said lie. What are you talking oh. about? Those <laughs> things are totally, um, totally true. Says the guy with the three-year-old. Fair enough. Yeah. And <laughs> and so, but but we actually wrote a paper on this about the, essentially the investing pyramid. And I said, you know, it's funny. And, and the beauty of education and knowledge is it compounds. And particularly with the internet is it, get re- it gets revealed. And so... 50 years ago, how would our parents' generation have invested? First of all, they, they wouldn't have. Most people didn't. Um, but had they had a broker at Dean Witter or E.F. Hutton, you know, they would have bought a handful of stocks, paid some ungodly commission account. You know, they probably would have bought some um, CDs or some, some sort of bonds. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it was different. You know, the average mutual fund was like, north of two. Um, and so things get, I think things get better over time. And so I think having the dual balance of a basic education and we can get, haven't even gotten into student debt, you know, 17 year old. I don't know if you guys remember being 17, but, uh, last thing I was capable of deciding was whether or not I should be taking on $200,000 and, and, you know, future liabilities, um, with no framework. I could, 
talk to you about calculus all day long because that's what we were taught. But anyway, I think there should be a basics um, and then align that with uh, systems that the incentives and the knowledge is set up in kind of the best interest and the opting in of the, the I agree. I, I think it shouldn't be private. My God, and I don't know how you guys have it, but retirement in the U.S. is the most complicated. There's IRAs, there's SEP IRAs, there's 401k. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, who, who could possibly figure that out? I'm a professional. I can't figure it out. Anyway, so we kind of agree and disagree. But I, I think I, healthcare I think too. And the one thing that, as a Canadian, that's, that I getting into dealing with uh, the American RIA network and just the the amount of gray matter that has to be put to the idea of healthcare is absolutely mind numbing. Um, and, and so the pandemic to me is also you know, created, there's, there are some things that the government should be highly involved in. They don't optimize well when the free market's involved. Um, pandemic management of behavior, management of health resources, management of the society based on that. These are, these are some topics that, I, so that's why I, yeah. uh, Adam, Adam changed my mind on, you know, the idea of pensions, the shared risk, the simplification, superannuation, these things, there should be a good base. If you think about a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs with respect to your your sort of financial obligations and then what a society should obligate you to provide for yourself, you get a long way in a behavioral management, right? The superannuation, it's simple. You got three or four choices and you don't have, but one of the choices that you don't have is not to participate. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the other, thing, the other thing that I'm picking up from the things that you're really excited about, Meb, is this idea of, creating a community. I think that's something that is right through this. Everything you've talked about is, okay, creating communication, whether it's happiness, uh, creating that opportunity for groups to come together and, and share their experiences in these sort of common themes. Is that is that on purpose? Is that just something that you've come to from a value set? Or is that something you've sort of thought about explicitly as you're, you're kind of wandering through um, the world on, on the MEB journey? Well, I think, um, you know, the first way, the odd takeaway is vast majority of people should spend zero time on their investing, you know, set up a plan. We talk about this. We say what percentage of people have a written investing plan. It's usually around 5%, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be complicated. It could be three bullet points. It could be 20 page policy portfolio, but do you even actually have a plan? So when it hits the fan and things like 2020 happen, you don't have a fracture. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys know just as many people, uh, as I do that sold this year and will probably never buy again or sold in 09 to never buy again, or, you know, just on and on because they don't have a plan. And so, um, you know, the, uh, but once this is stuff is set up, like I don't think people should be spending that much time uh, mucking around with their investments. And uh, we love to debate all day. And if it's a hobby, that's fine. You know, I'm like, look, if you're, if you're a hobbyist, you like investing cause it's um, interesting. God bless you. Like, there's cooler things in the world, but you know, we're, we're odd ducks in that sense. And we do this for a living, but, um, but yeah, but at least having the tools to be equipped, uh, I was smiling as you were talking about, you know, kind of platforms and, and communities. Cause I was thinking back to the days of like, uh, raging bull Yahoo message boards, Twitter now. So you get the little benefits, but also the cesspool <laughs> too. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, the, the biggest problem and the, 
the big muscle movements of what really matters, save and invest in the first place. We do the Venn diagrams. I bet most of us would probably agree with most of the big things that really matter over time. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't know the ideal solution for the delivery um, or the curriculum, but I think most of us could write it down on a napkin, uh, you know, and come up with something that's, that would work. Is it, is it fundamentally at odds? Sorry, go ahead, Rod. No, Rod, you're not allowed to speak this time. You just got to stand there. I just, had to, I just had to come in. I had to come in and talk about that, that insurance, that, uh, not insurance policy, but the, um, the lottery ticket idea. Um, it, it really, lottery ticket idea, superannuation is all about using the behavioral uh, tricks that we can get for people to do the right thing, right? And my father, one of the things that I think of in the U.S., I need to get in here because if somebody has an idea of a startup, they should be doing this. In the U.S., it's similar to in Peru. Healthcare is a thing that a lot of people just don't have, and they don't want to spend the money for it. And yet, everybody buys a lottery ticket. So my my father actually ran a company in Peru for, for a few years, where he it was a weekly lottery ticket that came with an insurance policy attached to it, a healthcare policy attached to it. And so he was deliberately giving everybody insurance, health insurance, while also gambling on. Um, on trying to win that lottery, right? It, it was—it's just a brilliant idea, and and it was an instant success. And the other thing, superannuations improves the same thing. Nobody's saving in Peru, right? Everybody has their house, and then the rest of it they're spending it, being forced to save. And one of the key things is to give enough freedoms. It's not just about you have five uh, risk portfolios; you have five different providers that the government has approved to provide you five risk portfolios. So there's that kind of this illusion, illusion of, of, uh, choice. of choice, uh, and they all pretend to kind of compete against each other and they're slightly different, but there is some choice there. So I think the, the success here of the, uh, of the school is to really couple that education with the right incentives, as Meb has said. And there's tons, we know, we know much more now on the behavioral side than we ever did, and we're not using the tools uh, as well as we should. I think there's Rod, for prime minister. the actual messages that we should be teaching. That's the other thing. Like, as everyone was sort of saying, well, you know, the inverted pyramid and whatever. I'm like, I don't know that there's enough, there's, there's any more consensus on what the right uh, savings and investment plan is for, for everybody it, as there is on, you know, the optimal food pyramid. So there's, there's that. Uh, Save something. Well, it works for, <laughs> it works for real estate. I think most people can identify with that. Real estate is not, um, a huge wealth builder because it's a magical asset class. It's fine. It's because people, it's forced savings you would otherwise spend. You know, we all hedonically adapt, right? If you got money laying around, like most people are going to spend it. Real estate, they get like it's a house, it's a home, it's forced savings every month. It's just a little harder when it applies to everything. But you talk to anybody in Australia about the their supers, they love them. They're like, this yeah, is yeah. amazing. This yeah, is great. No, we're big fans so. too. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's 90 minutes. You guys want to do another 90? This has made me maybe want to drink that. Maybe this podcast, instead of drinking throughout, you just like drives you to drink. Yeah. <laughs> that was the ultimate goal. That's why we insist on drinking throughout so that uh, by yeah. the end you're, you're sated. You're loose, loosened up. Exactly. Yeah. I have, I have a up. whole bullet point list of things to talk to, to, to rile up the, the crew. We didn't even get to them. So I have to do well, it again. Well, I hit him. Hit him. One thing I don't have to you say that you, that you have, that you have the URL risk parody, like mm-hmm. the, 
Not PCLT. Parity or make an offer. Make an offer. You have that. You have risk parity. Oh my and, god! And okay, I, I used to have risk parity. Love it, I love it. I might Dude, pick you up on that. That's awesome. We'll, we'll submit a private offer on a napkin. <laughs> of course. Well, awesome. what do you think, guys? That's that's that then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Listen, happy happy Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving man. It was fun. Thanksgiving, everyone else. I hope all of you take a uh, at least minimally effective vaccine and get to come see me in Los Angeles shortly and hang out. Uh, and hopefully get to join you guys back in the cold north, either for some turns or you, you gotta come whatever that Cayman. Thai place was. I want to go back just for that Thai restaurant. I hope they yeah. haven't gone out of business. Yeah, Please tell me that. Pie. They're, they're, yeah. they're pie. They're still there. Oh, my daughter lives. My my daughter lives a block from there, so they're, they're still opening operating. a second one up uh, yeah. up in Davisville. Yeah. So there you go. Free restaurant recommendation. P A I Pie. If you go to Toronto, and you like Thai food. That is the place to go. Best place that is the box. Yeah. Agreed. And the March for the Fallen, maybe next year it's uh, it's back on. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I uh, we did one here local in LA this year remotely. So uh, yeah, I think you know twenty twenty one. I think everything's moving the right direction. I'm optimistic. I always sound like a pessimist, but at my core, I'm a big optimist. I always so. think, feel like you sound like such an optimist, actually. Oh, good. thank <laughs> you. Everything's relative. I'm, I'm <laughs> passing the recording along to my family and friends. <laughs> yeah. Perspective. Yeah. Yeah, Love it. Right. All right. Well, thanks. Happy right, Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy and, Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah. Thanks. We'll see you Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.